Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. One person was stabbed to death just before I got there. Blood on the floor was a daily occurrence. Yeah, attempted murders were exceptionally common. This wasn't a holiday camp, and I really had to pull myself on track. Peter Sage, international speaker, best-selling author, philosopher, and teacher. Can you describe to me what it felt like when you realized that you were going to prison? It was a very, what I call, a sharp turn in the river. I've just lost my business. I've lost everything I own. I'm drowning in hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal debt. I thought it was going to get thrown out of court in five minutes. I didn't really take it seriously. They put a contempt of court application in. They sold it to the judge and I ended up going to prison for six months in Britain's most violent jail. I spent the best part of a quarter of a century at that point helping people with their mindset. And I got excited. I thought, wow, I actually have a, a real opportunity here to demonstrate what I've been teaching on stage for many years. Freedom is a state of mind. If there's people that probably need this, they're probably in jail. And I essentially went in and went to work. I'm Erica Kohlberg, and you're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast. We all have our reasons for ordering takeout. You're too tired to cook after a long day, you fancy a treat, or you're craving something specific, like the Thai food I'm always craving. Whatever the reason, PayPal and Uber Eats want to help you get your fix. Until October 12, 2023, you can get $10 off each of your next three orders of $25 or more when you use PayPal as your method of payment when ordering on Uber Eats. So whether you want to order your favorite dish or be bold and try something new, PayPal and Uber Eats have got you covered. It's so simple to use. Just go to the Uber Eats app, go to the restaurant of your choice, add food to your cart, and head to checkout where you can use the promo code Uber6JCJDEV. The code will automatically be saved in your Uber wallet ready for your next eligible purchase. Save on orders with Uber Eats now when you pay with PayPal and get $10 off each of your next three orders of $25 or more. For full terms and conditions, visit paypal.com slash Erica taught me. I'll put the link and the code in the show notes. Enjoy. Can you talk about something in your life where at the time, maybe it seemed like a bad thing that actually ended up being a good thing for you? Oh, well, there's one you know, very obvious instance that springs to mind. 
And that is, uh, you know, many years as a serial entrepreneur, uh, I was involved in some, doing some business uh, many years ago and a few years later, uh, I was in a litigation battle with a major multi-billion dollar company. And they had a $100 million law firm. Uh, I was on pretty much legal aid at that point as a state-appointed attorney. You, you, you know uh, which direction that's going to go. Uh, and I thought it was going to get thrown out of court in five minutes. I didn't really take it seriously. They put a contempt of court application in. And it turned out they, you know, they sold it to the judge. And I ended up going to prison for six months in Britain's most violent jail as the only non-criminal. You know, I've never been accused of a crime. You know, it wasn't a criminal trial. Uh, it was litigation. And it was for contempt of court. You know, my ego kind of got in the way because I was upset about what I thought they were doing. And uh, I never saw it coming. Can you describe to me what it felt like when you realized that you were going to prison? I've never been able to ask anyone that. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought I'd be a kind of person to answer it, to be fair. Yes, I mean, obviously, as the background, this is a, as, a, as a civil prisoner. I've never been arrested. I've never been accused of a crime, no criminal record. And to be caught flat-footed in a civil litigation where the opposite side that has a lot more money uh, throws a contempt of court application and kind of my ego probably got the better of me. And to suddenly realize that what I thought was a no-lose situation that was going to get thrown out of court in five minutes turned out to be a, a masterclass in how to use the system uh, uh, against somebody or on your own side, depending on which side of the table you're on. It was one of those moments where uh, I have to get to acceptance very fast. One of the biggest challenges with people that have anxiety is the resistance they have to the, the world that no longer fits their pictures or the, uh, the thoughts they have about what may go wrong. And when it was looking fairly obvious that this was not going the way that it was planned, my internal position at that point was, okay, if I end up going away here, what then? How do I turn this to my advantage? And that's a tough question to ask a lot of the times. Yeah, when things go wrong, most people are, are too busy being caught up either in the story or the unmet expectations. And you know, I've had to train myself over the years to really always look for the positive. And Napoleon Hill said that in every adversity lies the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. I actually wrote that down and put it above my cell door. And I'd look at it and stare at it and sometimes read it hundreds of times a day to try to maintain positive attitude. But I knew that if it was going to happen, and it, it happened, then anything other than immediate acceptance, not resignation, that's more like apathy from a victim perspective, but acceptance like, okay, this has happened. It is what it is. The milk has been spilt. Crying about it's not going to put it back in the bottle. You know, moaning about how it's ruined the carpet isn't going to help your day. What do I do now? I free up the energy of resistance uh, or story or drama or upset, and I channel that energy into, okay, what's the next best move? Because unless you've got a time machine and you're Marty McFly, uh, no one's going back to change anything. And that's a lot easier when there's not a lot of weight on the bar. It, there's a lot of weight on the bar if it's a major life-transforming, uh, significant emotional event or the loss of a loved one or, or something. And for me, it was a case of, okay, how do I... You know, how do I accept this? Okay, done. How do I move forward? And I realized that you know, I had a, an opportunity. I spent the best part of a quarter of a century at that point helping people with their mindset, being able to show people how to become the best version of themselves. And I got excited. I thought, wow, 
I actually have a, a real opportunity here to demonstrate what I've been teaching you know, on stage for many years and practicing here and there, but never at this level. And if there's people that probably need this more than the average person that has access to YouTube or TikTok or what have you, they're probably in jail. You know, there's no internet in jail. Uh, certainly not the ones I was in. And so if I can go in and become a secret agent of change, if I can go and focus on something bigger than me, that's a big point, then uh, how can I add value? And I essentially went in and you know, went to work. And that gave me a purpose, gave me a direction. And if you read Man's Search for Meanings, I'm sure you know, many of you and our viewers have, you know, the, the difference between the survivors and those that didn't survive in somewhere like Auschwitz wasn't physical brawn. That all got taken away. It wasn't uh, who you knew. It was, did you have a purpose bigger than you that you wanted to see through to the end? And that was what the difference was in terms of emotional survival. And so, yeah, I, I got busy. I became a, an undercover Jedi uh, inside a, a secret agent of change to try to help as many people that were in despair, that did have anxiety, that were in grief uh, or guilt or shame or uh, any of the... You know, emotions that really pull us down. And, and that really helped me tremendously by taking the focus off myself and my pity pot story uh, or what could have been and really focus it on how do I grow and contribute. I know that when you got there, like your first day, it sounds like you had such a positive outlook. Did you ever allow yourself as the days leading up to the first day of prison, did you ever allow yourself to feel like a victim? It's an interesting question because you know, there are differences between states of consciousness and stages of consciousness. Uh, a, a stage is kind of where you live. A state is where you visit. People that suffer from depression can have moments of joy. People that are naturally joyful or you know, generally happy can have moments where they're upset or, or sad. So I make the distinction between a state and a stage. My stage at that time was one of, you know, all fairness, excitement. I'd never done anything like this before. I'd never been on this adventure. I'd only seen things like prison break uh, to have any kind of reference of what it was like on the other side of the door. And I was going into what turned out to be statistically the most violent prison in the UK. And as the only non-criminal, uh, 1,300 prisoners, I was the only one there that had never been accused of a crime and never been arrested, et cetera. So it was definitely fascinating, you know, to quote the late, great Jim Rohn, you know, turn your frustrations into fascination is a great way to shift your focus. So there were times where, you know, yes, I'm human. I said, I've just lost you know, my business. I've lost everything I own. I'm drowning in hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal debt. Uh, you know, my wedding got canceled. You know, my, all of my staff, you know, I went from 50 staff to three staff in like three days. It was a very, what I call, sharp turn in the river. And you, know, you deal with that. You, know, you accept that quickly by turning the focus away from yourself. And what can I do to contribute? How can I turn this to my advantage? What are better questions that I can ask? Why does my life suck is not an empowering question. Why? Because your brain is trained to find an answer. Your brain is a faithful Labrador. And if you throw the stick of a question, it's going to run off and fetch it and bring back the answer. So asking, you know, you know why does my life suck? Your brain is going to find an answer. You know, the job of the mind is to rationalize, to justify and so I knew that I had to impose a strict zero tolerance on negative self-talk. But you're also there lying awake 23 hours a day in a tiny little room, 
staring at the ceiling, there's a lot of room for self-doubt, anxiety, negativity to creep in, certainly if you allow it. So there were moments where I was upset. There were times I cried. There were times I wondered if I'd ever be able to teach again or if I could help more people. And they were far fewer than the majority of the time where the center of gravity was, which was, okay, how do I turn this into an adventure? If I'm starring in the movie of my life, then I just see myself as on location for six months filming the prism scene. And that's going to be an adventure. How do I look at this through the lens of a challenge? We know, Erica, and when it comes to mammals, of which obviously we fall under that category, if a mammal perceives something external as a situation, as a uh, a threat, the cortisol response means it will lose a significant percentage of its muscle strength. If that same animal perceives the same situation as a challenge, it will go through a biochemical response that will increase its muscle strength. And a lot of people are facing uh, challenges, looking at them as threats. And therefore, it becomes that self-fulfilling prophecy. We, We don't have the wherewithal. We don't have the determination. We don't have the resourcefulness when we're in a negative state, even if most of the time we're in a positive stage. Everybody can get thrown off the horse. And it's part of life. You know, one of the most empowering awarenesses I believe somebody can have is the day they realize that life is a growth-centric experience, not a comfort-centric experience. You are going to get tested. There are going to be challenges. It's built into the curriculum here in Earth School, as I call it. So how you approach that can lead to whether you're going to be a victim or whether you're actually going to grow through that challenge to become better for it. the, The common vernacular being, you know, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Now, we're not saying it's going to kill you anyway, but if if it kills your spirit, that's just as bad. If you acquiesce to being a victim, if you succumb to the fact that the external situation is out of my control and I can't do anything and I have no compelling future or short-term future, that can put somebody into a tailspin. So, yeah, I had the whole range of emotions because as human beings, we're meant to feel every emotion. Yeah, I, everyone says, oh, I just want to be happy. Feeling happy is pretty easy. It's called think happy thoughts. And happiness is a after product, a byproduct of certain biochemistry linked to certain thoughts, which are linked to the rules we have about what has to happen in order to feel happy. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to be happy all the time. I don't want to be happy at my mother's funeral. There's a different stage of emotional process. I needed to go through grief, but not be a victim to grief. If you're going through it on your terms because it's a cathartic experience because you want to honor your mother and the loss and there's an adjustment period, that's fine. If you go through that from a place of grief has now dumped me on the floor and I'm going to tell the story about why I'm a victim for it. I've known people 10 years on still not got over the loss of somebody because they haven't been able to frame it in a way any other than they're a victim for it sometimes even blaming that person for dying and leaving them or abandoning them or what have you. So you know, there's there's a lot to understand about what goes on when you face challenges. But the most empowering place you can do it from is a place of saying, okay, ask better questions. You know, what's great about this I've not noticed yet? And you may have to look hard. What's something, at least something I can be grateful for? What's something I can learn from this? We're shifting the focus away from poor me to okay, this has happened. I can't change it. I don't have the time machine, but I am going to be able to come out better for it. 
when during the prison stay or leading up to it, was it the hardest to follow your own advice? Can you think of like a particular part where it was just so challenging and you were so down that it was hard to think those happy thoughts? Uh, there's, a, there's a saying in France, one of my, my, my clients shares a lot called, uh, it's a French saying called, at night all the cats are gray. You know, in terms of uh, when, when you're lying there at night, uh, yeah, it's a, lot, it's a lot easier for negative thoughts to come in. And I remember my body was trained to wake up at 5 a.m. That's, I'm a 5 a.m. guy. And so, you know, this is January in England. It's, it's pitch black. Uh, the cells are freezing cold. You've, you've got a blanket which pretty much doubles up as a tablecloth. And there's no heating. And I'm lying there. And of course, my body wakes up at 5. I can't move until 7 a.m. because that's when my cellmate gets up. And you don't want to start upsetting him at, you know, at 5 a.m. Yeah. And so I would lie there awake for two hours. And those times were where it was the doubts would come flooding in. And part of that, I think, was the, the pervasiveness of the energy of the place. It, it smothered the prison like a shrink wrap, yeah, where it was negativity, anger, uh, resentment, shame, yeah, hopelessness. So you could feel the energy and the fear. And you know, one person was stabbed to death just before I got there. Yeah, blood on the floor was a daily occurrence. Yeah, attempted murders were exceptionally common. Yeah, this is one. This wasn't a holiday camp. And again, I, I was the only non-criminal in the entire jail. So yeah, there was uh, there was definitely times where you know, the, uh, the the five a.m. cats were very gray, and I really had to pull myself on track. And that's where again, asking better questions is is phenomenal. Questions are the steering wheel of the mind, and if you know how to ask better questions, if you have them on tap. You know, and if you have a model of the world that supports you rather than diminishes you, what do I mean by that? If you have a, a, a belief that you know, we're in a materialistic universe, you know, i.e. You know, out there is the only out there that's out there, and it's materialistic, it follows a Newtonian paradigm, you are going to be a stressed, I can tell you that right now, because you are looking at things from a place of how can I control how can I control events, control people, control situations? It's, you know, good luck. You know, we, we've all found that one of the fastest ways to stress is expecting us from everybody else. Mm. <laughs> right? So if you think that instead of living in a pseudo uncontrollable, that you're trying to control hostile world, if you have, you know, an inner belief that, you know, the universe is taking care of me and everything's going according to plan. That may not be the plan that your left brain sketched out that morning, but we live in a non-linear reality. And so having to, the fallback that you know, everything happens for me, not to me. Yeah, everything happens for a reason it's going to serve me. Again, back to Napoleon Hill. Every adversity carries with it the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. The challenge is so many people are focused on the story yeah, of the challenge and why they're a victim to it that they very rarely take the time to water the seed. And I think we can all have experiences whereby we faced something, some adversity, some situation, something that didn't fit our picture, some unmet expectation. And six months later, we look back on that and think, wow, thank goodness that happened. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this now, or I wouldn't have met that person, or this opportunity wouldn't present itself. You see, we can never join the dots you know, going forward, and to quote Steve Jobs. If you know that the vast majority of times, six months downstream, you're going to be celebrating what happened my question is, why wait six months? Yeah. 
sorry to keep digging into this, but I'm so curious. Like, so sure. these 5 a.m. nights, was there a specific exercise that you walked yourself through or a specific thing you were saying of like, okay, let me start to think about the situation. I guess the question is, was there a specific exercise that you walked yourself through? Several. And uh, you know, I, I documented a lot of these in, in the letters to the students at the time. And, uh, but for example, you know, the affirmations, I'm not a huge fan of affirmations because for affirmations to work, the, the heart and the mind have to be linked together. And most people are saying empty words. And so, hoping something magical happens. Yeah. And the universe isn't listening to what you say, it's listening to who you are. It doesn't bring you what you want. It doesn't care what's on your vision board. It doesn't care what you write down or say or speak or intellectualize. It cares where your awareness is. What are you focusing on? If you say, I want to be rich, but you focus on a you know, credit card bill you can't pay, you're going to get more evidence of a credit card bill you can't pay because that's where your awareness is. So unless the heart and mind are united, then affirmations don't carry a lot. Hence why the beliefs come first. You know, do you believe you live in a friendly or a hostile universe? That's yeah, Einstein's question. And those two beliefs have two very separate destinations. Now, if you're in a relationship and you, know, you split up and your partner walks away, you can either turn around and say, well, I'm no good, so they left me, or they, you can say, thank God they went, so they made room for somebody who's perfect. See, those two belief systems don't change what happened, but they change the trajectory of where you go from what happened. I couldn't change the fact I was in prison, but I could change how, my trajectory from there, certainly internally. And so asking better questions was great. Okay. Also, you know, affirmations such as, you know, I know, you know what's happening to me now is going to be for my benefit. I'm excited to see how this river turns out. You know, what is it that I can learn from this experience? And you redirect your focus there rather than the, why does this happen to me? Oh my God, what happens if this then happens? All of that stuff. You, know, you you take the steering wheel and you need to point it in a different direction. Other aspects is you know, to re-visualize the day. This is a technique from the great late Neville Goddard. I call it rescripting. So, you know, when you go to bed at night, if you've had a really crappy day, you don't actually look back as most people do and think, oh God, I'm glad that's over. You know, and you're dwelling on all the reasons why it sucked. Instead, you go to bed you know, and you visualize from getting up that morning, all of the amazing things that happened, even if they didn't happen in physical matter reality, you experience them as if they did. And that's, you know, as you know, the brain doesn't know the difference between something imagined and something that it encounters in physical matter reality. It produces the same biochemistry that affects the same emotional response. So you know, for me to lie there and visualize, you could almost call it fantasize, but you're making it real. And part of you is experiencing that with the heart and mind connected. And yet it's tough. There's, there's a lot of weight on the bar in situations like that. But if you don't practice it when there's you know, small things, like you get disappointed because you know, there's no parking spaces. You get disappointed because, uh, I don't know, they sold out of tickets to the game. You know, whatever it is, if you can practice it at the small stuff, it gets a lot easier when the big weight on the bar is required to lift. So you know, somebody who's constantly suffered from depression and you throw them in jail, you know, what I'm talking about is not, that's not the time to train. Mm -hmm. Now, the time to train is before that, so you can handle bigger and bigger you know, weights on the bar as you move forward. But asking better questions, shifting your focus, rescripting the day, focusing on what you can do more than benefiting yourself. Now, I find that one of the big shifts, having worked with a lot of depressed people and people that are anxious, one of the most commonalities amongst you know, that 
situation is people are too focused on themselves. Now, that may sound a little harsh, but when you realize that everything in nature operates under two primary principles, growth and contribution. Everything in nature grows and contributes or it's taken out of the food chain. So if we think we're different, if we're, if we're trying to go out there or start a business or hustle to get something in order to prove to someone, i.e. the world, that we're good enough in their eyes, i.e. external validation, mm -hmm. and then something doesn't fit our pictures, then that triggers the, the fear, the unconscious fear we all have as human beings, which is the fear we're not enough. And then you can go into a tailspin because most people will do almost anything to avoid that fear. It's where a lot of addictions come from, whether it's turning to alcohol or drugs or you know, gambling or yeah, porn or whatever it may be to try to distract ourselves from being able to sit with uh, a level of emptiness or avoid the fear that we're not enough. So in the achiever mode, we go out and try to prove that we're good enough. And that was most of my 20s. Till I realized most of the world didn't care. They were too busy trying to prove their own roles in their own movie. Right? So you know, if you can have a model of the world that, that does set you up to win, rather than you know, go blindly and just hope that life is going to treat you well, it's not. You know, the second law of thermodynamics states that you know, everything is eventually going to descend into disorder, what's called high entropy or chaos, and, and be recycled. You know, Everything that's physical by its very nature, its destination is non-physical. And we don't dwell on that too often. But if we did and we look beyond it, it means that the essence of life, you know, the, that the spark of life has to be non-physical. And that's exciting. Because if I'm more than my body, and this is what I was teaching some of the prisoners uh, in, uh, in Pentonville, uh, the difference between liberty and freedom, the only thing they'd done is reduce liberty. My decision space was smaller. I couldn't choose to walk to the shops or take my dogs a walk or what have you. And so my decision space was smaller. But that's that's just simply liberty. And people can feel a, a loss of liberty if they break their leg, if they don't have a passport, if they you know, haven't got a driving license. But freedom is a state of mind. You, there is always something you can be grateful for. I was teaching a lot of prisoners that were moaning they got a 12-month sentence, how grateful it was they didn't get a two-year sentence. Uh, they were contrasting to instead of getting a six-month sentence and feeling terrible. Right? It's all down to the state of mind. So yeah, there's there's a lot of tricks and, and tips that, that one can adopt to try to stay positive, but it is a proactive experience. You're responsible for making those decisions. You're not just going to have happy thoughts land on you and, and hope then it's all going to be okay. It, there's a process and you have to be committed with the intention to benefit from that process. I'm going to set myself up to win. I know this is going to be tough. I know there's going to be challenges. I know there's levels of uncertainty. But if you really want a superpower, you can split this down the middle. If you need or crave high levels of certainty, you're screwed. Because there is none. Let's face it. If you know how to generate certainty, you've got a superpower. And you'll see the difference in, in that divide in the lives and the quality of lives of people all over the planet. With my job, I travel a lot. Multiple flights, different time zones, and a packed schedule mean that it's easy to lose all sense of routine and miss out on important things like exercise. That's why I use and love Copilot. It helps me stay on track with my fitness goals regardless of where I am or what I'm doing. Copilot isn't just your usual fitness app. You get assigned an expert coach who will customize your workouts based on your needs. 
Mine has been amazing. We got on a call when I first started and she immediately understood what I needed. She's adjusted my sessions when I've been sick or super busy just to make sure they still work for me. Having Copilot by my side removes all the unnecessary stress of working out. Can I get to the gym? What should I do when I'm there? I just put on my workout clothes, open the app, and get going. At the end of a long, long day, it's so great to have a session ready to go. Copilot is fitness made easy. If you want to kickstart your health, then visit erica.com slash copilot to get a 14-day free trial with your own personal trainer. Again, that's erica.com slash copilot, Erica is with a K, to kickstart your health plan with a free trial. Link will also be in the show notes. Is this a, I'm thinking from my perspective, I'm very hard on myself. Like I definitely have self-doubt even with these podcasts. After each one, my husband is like, that was amazing. And I'm just like, I messed up this question. And, you know, I should have asked him this question. I completely missed out on that. Is that because I'm predisposed this way or have I not actively tried training my muscle to talk positively to myself? Is it based on my past experiences and my upbringing? Like, what do you find that this comes from? Essentially, are people predisposed to be more positive versus more negative? Or is it that the positive people have been training this muscle longer? It's symbiotic. There's a lot of factors that synergize uh, with that. And you, know, you can turn around to someone and say, for example, that you know, somebody could be born with a natural gift to play the guitar, right? Eric Clapton or Jimi Hendrix or what have you, but it doesn't mean to say somebody else can't learn. You know, the, the, the nature-nurture argument is not an argument. It's both. You know, environment has a massive impact. Now, we also know that sub-seven years old, we are exceptionally programmable because the brain does not hit its own version of puberty until around seven years old. And until you're seven years old, your brain waves operate uh, between delta and theta, which is creative imagination, which is why kids can turn a cardboard box into a fortress and, and believe it, or turn a broomstick into a unicorn and have fun. And you know, they sleep a lot, especially as babies. But when you hit you know, around about seven, eight years old, there is a shift in your ability to access your prefrontal cortex and enter a beta brainwave state. And what that does, it brings in critical thinking. And it's kind of smart. We don't have enough experience up till seven to make critical decisions. So we have mirror neurons, which copy our parents or our caregivers. And until we've got enough experience after seven years to start making decisions on our own. Now, if you look at that, the imprinting that happens sub seven is somewhat irreversible. Theta is the same brainwave state that hypnotists and hypnotherapists put people in to bypass critical thinking. And if it's a stage hypnotist, that means he can get you to think you're a chicken. All right, if it's a therapy, it means that they can undo negative beliefs around, you know, that cause you to go to smoking or anxiety, for example. But the first thing a hypnotist will always do is relax you. And the reason for that is they need to lower your brain frequency to a minimum or a maximum seven hertz. So if we go back to your question about, you know, self-doubt or anxiety, part of that could be uh, external environment, the pressure of having millions of followers that you know, love and adore you and you're not wanting to let them down. There's, there's, a, uh, uh, there's a, a beauty to that. But part of that could also be the social expectations that were put on you sub seven, certainly from a, uh, a culture, and I know Japan uh, especially. <laughs> yeah, I've spent yeah. a lot of time in Japan, uh, you know, one of the highest suicide rates in the world. Why is that? Because 
the level of pressure and expectation that falls on people to perform in order to qualify for something they are already qualified for, they need to feel good enough. See, if you feel that you've got to do the perfect podcast in order to give yourself permission to feel good enough that you've done it, then you're probably divorcing yourself from the original idea of why you started it in the first place. I'll give you another example, tennis. People start tennis because they want to enjoy the game. Yeah, you don't think, oh, I'm, let's think of a hobby that's really going to upset me. No, right? <laughs> you, they, they enjoy playing tennis. They, a friend calls them for a game. Yeah, let's go for a game. But if you're in the middle of a game and it's not fun and you're sprinting either side of the court, out of breath, missing balls, beating yourself up and now, and in business, there's a lot of balls that come over the net at the same time, right? And you're frantically trying to get into a situation where you feel that in order to enjoy the game, you've got to hit every ball right. You're missing the real reason you signed up. Yeah, there's a sense of wonder and joy at this incredible experience we get to have called life, especially in a time in human history our ancestors have dreamed about. I mean, think about it. You know, I'm sure in your lineage and my lineage, some of our ancestors died in agony and childbirth, allowing us to be here today. And we're going to get upset because of traffic. We're going to get upset because, you know, they, they, they didn't have the, you know, the caramel sauce in Starbucks, right? No, it, it, we, we get too serious sometimes. We take ourselves too seriously. And that social expectation that we impose on ourselves as a result of a lot of the time that programming is what robs us of the joy of being in this incredible life. And so if you have self-doubt and you're beating yourself up, all you'd want to do is reconnect to that time where you got excited about starting this podcast. You can remember that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how I bet you weren't, yeah, there may have been a little bit of, of nervousness because of the uncertainty, but it was an excitement around it, not a social peer pressure that you've then created for yourself based upon what you feel that now you are obligated to do. As soon as you have guilt, duty, or obligation, uh, rise, joy is going to plummet. So have fun. Yeah, we're here. I'll, I'll, I'll try and screw up a little bit if it makes you feel better. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, they say that like, they say that you shouldn't try to make all of your hobbies income generating because as soon as it's income generating, it puts this pressure on you and it suddenly isn't really a hobby anymore. Like I remember when I first started TikTok, it was just so fun. I started it because I wanted to help people. And the first 30 days or the first you know, 10 days when I had no followers, it was so fun creating these videos. I felt no expectations. But now it's not so fun. I like the end result. I like the impact that I have. But the actual like process of it is just a lot of pressure. And it's almost an irony because you perform far better when there's no pressure. Because what people really want to see is not a polished podcast. Yeah, I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm the last guy in the world to ever want to be perfect. And anyone that's watching this that is a perfectionist, you know, give me a wave right now. You know, there's a lot out there. There is no such thing as perfectionism. People don't understand this. You know, I worked with Tony Robbins for 15 years as a, you know, one of the experienced trainers. And Tony would say perfection is the lowest standard because it's unattainable. But let's go deeper because I'm, you know, my, my area of expertise is human behavior. Why do we do what we do? What is the, the behavior most people try to change is the, is the consequence, it's the byproduct of a pattern that is running deeper. So let's take perfectionism as an example. Now, there is no such thing as perfectionism. There is a word that we use called perfectionism, which sounds moralistically high on the high ground, right? So I'm just trying to be perfect. So that's noble. No, it isn't. You created a word to cover up what's really going on, which is scared of screwing upism. Mm. Why? Because I'm fearful of the good opinion of other people. 
or the good opinion of myself because, you know, I, I even judge myself harshly because if I don't hit the perfectionism, I can hear mum's voice in the background when I'm, I returned home uh, when I was young with a school report that was a B instead of an A. And now uh, instead of celebrating the B, I get chastised for not getting the A. You know, a lot of programming on there. But taking the, the, the pressure off, and this is why it's sometimes great to zoom out to a more macro level. As I said earlier, you're going to have a final scene in this movie. That's non-negotiable. Right? Nobody under the illusion that they're going to live forever, certainly in this physical body. So to have a framework of looking at life from a higher perspective allows distance to happen from the drama. And I use the metaphor a lot of, you know, we are starring in the movie of our life. And I know you're starring in the movie of your life. And the reason I know that is because you're the only one that appears in every single scene in your movie. Everybody else at best may be a supporting cast, like your husband or best friend or business partner or whatever it may be, or sibling. But the vast, vast majority of people in your movie throughout its entire duration are nothing more than film extras in your movie. Now, what is the definition of a film extra? Simple. Somebody who you are no longer thinking about when they're not in your current scene. Now, by that definition, how many people in our movie are film extras? Vast majority. So if we're walking around thinking that uh, I'm, I'm the star of my movie, there's an inherent problem with that because it carries over into thinking, oh, everybody sees me as the star of my movie, but they don't because they're starring in a different movie, <laughs> right? Which movie are they in? Theirs. Their own, which means by definition, we play one of two roles in everybody else's movie, at best a supporting cast. And yeah, the people that mind don't matter, the people that matter won't mind. Uh, but the vast, vast majority of people who we try to adapt ourselves into uh, our perceptions of an approval strategy for, you know, getting you know what I call swimming in goop, the good opinion of other people. Yeah, we're nothing more than film extras in their movie, which means what specifically? And and here's one of the keys to dissolving this belief system if you're open to it. It means that while we're walking around as the star of our own movie in our own bubble of self-importance, we think, I wonder what other people are thinking of us. Oh. Instead, what they're actually thinking is this, right? I wonder what they're thinking of us. In other words, most people don't care enough about you to bother to even give an opinion. Even if they give you a like on, on, on social, four seconds later, they're in a different scene. So most people don't care enough about you to bother to give an opinion, certainly one that matters. Why? Because they're too busy being worried about what they think you're thinking of them. And when you wake up to that awareness, it's liberating. I don't have to look a particular way to impress people. I don't have to show up anywhere other than authentic. And when you're authentic, you don't mind screwing upism because we're not here to get all the answers right. Yeah, if you get all the answers right in class, it's time to move up a year, <laughs> right? It's, it's just the way it is. If we're here to grow and contribute, and but people say, oh, I get to the end of you know year year ten, you know, or, you know tenth grade, and. I've managed to learn everything this year, so I'm going to stay in the 10th grade for the rest of my life being the smartest person in the room so I don't have to face the fear of failing or answering questions I don't know. It doesn't work that way. Uh, so you know, being able to have that level of awareness that life this time around is the star of your movie, I believe we've been in many other movies before. I believe we'll be in many more movies moving forward. You know, I'm not getting to religious connotations or you know, three-letter words that we kill each other over and all that kind of stuff, but just hold that as a possibility. 
If that was the case, it mirrors very much as a fractal expression the Hollywood movie industry. Why do people sign up to be actors or actresses? Why? Because they want to enjoy that career. So you take a script. And that script, if you're a good actor, you want to take a script that's going to challenge you, not one that you're going to be a, you know, do a TV commercials for the rest of your life on remembering three lines. You want to take something that challenges you. And so if we look at this a Hollywood example, if we came here to star in this particular movie, and for some people, I get it, it seems like a drama. Yeah, for some people, it may be a horror show. But you're still co-creating the script. A new future is always available. If you can come to the place of saying, well, what am I here to learn? Personally, if you want the answer to the question, it usually takes me many hours in my, my seminars to, to get to this point. But you know, if you really want what I believe to be the purpose of life, and I have no right to impose this on anyone else, I'm just giving examples and, and being the invitation. But people whose lives work come to understand that the real reason we're here is to choose love over fear as a choice in ever more challenging circumstances. And what's the tie back to that? The tie back is, you know, why are we here? Well, let's go back 400 million years. Let's look at the fossil records. We know that life on this planet, as best as we can tell in today's world, has you know, progressed. We call it evolution. It has evolved. How has it evolved? We've taken a single cell, let's say an amoeba, and now we have a 50 trillion cell organism called the human body. But if you take those 50 trillion individual amoebas and you introduce one food source, what have you got? Competition and war for who gets what. Because it's survival of the fittest, everyone for themselves. And if you have a competitive mindset rather than a collaborative mindset, you're going to be in a war for most of your life trying to battle for how much money you get, battle for you know being able to get your place under the sun, whatever it may be. But if we look at the evolution of that, we operate now as a, a unit of 50 trillion cells, give or take. There's no war going on when we introduce one food source. Now, the liver and the heart don't gang up against the lungs and the kidneys to you know, compete for hemoglobin. Right? There is a collaborative energy. So if you look at that, the difference between... You know, those two scenarios, evolution or the game that we're in, in this, this life, in this earth school, seems to have a direction of travel, which goes from simple to complex and to evolve. And in order to make that game work, collaboration has to win over competition. Otherwise, my body's going to be fighting itself. We'll call that an autoimmune disease. And so if you take the word collaboration and you extrapolate that to its logical conclusion, in my world, you hit love. And love is the, unconditional love is the ultimate in, you know, or the, in cooperation and the antithesis of competition. And there is no separation at that point. Uh, it's, it's inclusion, not exclusion. And so if we are here to learn how to love and grow so we can contribute more of who's growing to uh, the, uh, the world, then the purpose of life by its very nature, is going to involve challenges. And if those, if I'm focused too much on myself and it ruins my pictures, then I'm going to diminish myself or I'm going to get frustrated and I'm going to fall off the horse again until I learn. Can we dig into the stop expecting you from everyone else a little bit more? It has its basis in the need for control. And the fact that we think that everybody sees us as the star of our movie and therefore they think like us. And they don't because they're starring in their own movie. So 
if you are a boss and let's say, I don't know, your secretary does something that you know, doesn't fit your pictures, well, guess what? If she was going to think or he was going to think the way that you think, they wouldn't be a secretary, they'd be their own boss. They'd be running their business. You know, we forget that everybody projects from their own model of the world. And we've got no right to be able to expect them to understand ours. I always said earlier about, you know, when you grew up, you developed a, a survival archetype based upon the nature of the environment you were in. And so if you grow up as a peacekeeper, because you're conflict averse, because your parents, you know, could be triggered at any point and you felt psychological safety by just retreating to a corner. And every time you saw them fighting or something, it scared the, the, the crap out of you. So therefore, you, know, you just want everyone to get along. And well, that's not going to make a good salesperson, right? You want a salesperson that isn't conflict averse because otherwise they can't handle rejection, for example. Right? But we forget that. And we, we expect, um, or if you're a salesperson, yeah, if, you, if you're a, a negotiator and, uh, and you are someone that can draw boundaries and you're married to somebody who is a yes person because it's just want everyone to get along, then you are going to have two entirely different lives in one marriage. If you are a, a warrior, you know, you, you know how to swing. So you, you're happy to have conflict and you think it's healthy. You, know, you, you want to have debate so it can be out in the open so there's none of this clandestine you know, game playing. Let's talk it through. And the other person is one of those creatives in their head. They're going to come up with all sorts of verbose levels of articulation, justifications, and, and running off on a tangent and never address the issue. And that, you know, if, if you're more direct to the point, warrior energy, that's going to screw you up. But we forget that we're all starring in different movies. And if I'm expecting you to be on my script with my style of writing, then I'm going to set myself up for failure. Because I'm essentially sitting back there as kind of my own uh, self-inflated ego, uh, thinking that as the center of the universe, my model of the world is the only one that counts. And that, that, that doesn't work. And it's not necessarily also control. It's sometimes, again, like your mother, we want the best for that person. And we feel that we think we know what's best for them. When the reality is we don't. We don't know how much of a lesson that they're about to learn is going to impact them. You know, I've had you know, businesses that, that I've lost and I've, I've lost you know, millions of dollars and I've had friends lose investments. And people say, are you guilty about that? I can't afford to be guilty. Guilt's the one emotion where you stand alone, judging yourself. And some of them have come back to me and says, wow, that was the best lesson I learned. And thank goodness I lost only five grand or 10 grand instead of next time I'll be asking different questions or I'd look at it for a different way and it could have been a 50 grand investment that I love. You get the idea. We need to realize that everybody's on a, a certain genre uh, of movie. And some people are in a drama or a soap opera. And it's evident. They solve drama at the dinner table. They go to the gas station, there's drama there. Uh, they solve that drama, there's drama at work. They live in a drama. You probably know people like this. And the way to get out of that is not to try to solve all the drama. It's being written into every scene at some level based on your energy. You rise above. You say, you know something? I'm, I'm done with the drama. I recognize there's going to be a lot of other people that are still in drama. But I'm, I'm, if, if there's a, a building and there's script writers on each of the floors writing a different genre, and I, I'm on the lower floor where it's the horror show, I'm not going to try to grab the pen out of the script writer's hands and, uh, and try to force them to write something different. That doesn't work. I'm going to go in the elevator and press up. I'm going to come out on the fifth floor, which is now more of a comedy, a rom-com, or what have you. 
and you shift your awareness, you shift your yeah, energetic relationship to what it is. But at the same time, you appreciate there's a lot of other people that are on different floors and you've got no right to rewrite their script. I posted a few months ago on Instagram this picture of me on a billboard in Times Square. And I remember one comment being like, she got on a billboard, but her hair stays messy. And it's true. I tend to get pretty frizzy hair and tons of split ends. That's where today's sponsor comes in. I've been using their satin pillowcase for the past month, and it's game-changing. Because the texture of the pillowcase is so smooth, it reduces the friction that causes this hair frizzing and breakage. I even sent one to my sister. And it's not just their pillowcases. Game-changing is what Kitsch's biggest fans say about its time-saving beauty essentials for hair, skin, and body. Are you ready to change your beauty game? Whatever your budget, your skin type, your hair type, Kitsch believes you deserve little indulgences at affordable prices, morning, noon, and night. Right now, Kitsch is offering you 30% off your entire order at mykitsch.com slash Erica. That's right, 30% off anything and everything at mykitsch, K-I-T-S-C-H dot com slash Erica. One more time, mykitsch.com slash Erica. Erica is always with a K for 30% off your order. Anyone running an online business understands how important it is to find the right partners and online platforms that match your needs. There are so many choices, but when I discovered Shopify, I knew it was a platform I had to share. Shopify is your no excuses business partner, and they make it easy for you to show up exactly the way you want to, customize your online store to your style, and sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Shopify's new AI-enabled tools, powered by Shopify Magic, instantly write compelling product descriptions that will help you save time and sell more. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Erica, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Erica to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash Erica. I think what I'm confused about though is the love to me is like caring about other people and thinking outwardly about how are other people feeling? But at the same time, I know that's also what's gotten me into this place where I just think negatively because I have such high expectations set for myself of what other people expect of me. So how do you deal with that conflict between wanting to love and give and but okay. then being in your own movie and <laughs> no one else matters? It's not that it don't matter. I mean, if, if you're on set and nobody else matters, we call that being a diva, <laughs> right? Um, but we, we get confused because of the linguistics. We have chosen one word, one four-letter word called love that can mean so many different things. Uh, I love my dogs. I love a pizza. I love massage. I love my partner. I love my parents. I love my kids. What, that there is diff one word, but many different expressions. What we're really talking about is unconditional love. An unconditional love, very few people have a reference for. Because when we grew up, the model of parenting itself 
almost guarantees there is no unconditional love. Now, all the mothers are going, well, I unconditionally love my baby. I understand. And when a baby's you know, up to 12 months, 18 months old, it can't do any wrong because it's a baby. So if it wakes you up at three in the morning and you haven't had any sleep, or if it throws up on your new blouse, you know, just as you're going out to work, it's inconvenient, but you don't blame the baby because it's what babies do. Yeah, Dogs bark, dogs chase cats. It's what they do. So when you get to maybe two years old and there's an awareness now, there's a point where there is a transference of communication. So there's an expectation the parent places on the child to do as they're told. And the parent, in order to feel they're a good enough parent, is trying to guide that child moralistically through whatever their model of the world is. But in doing so, we impose a universal model. And I don't have an answer to this. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just observing that the expectation is if the child does something good, does as it's told, the perception from the child is that that's rewarded. Love, connection, approval, validation, whatever. If the child does something wrong, the perception from the child is that that is withdrawn. Now, obviously, the mother loves the child or the father loves the child. That's not in question. But it's the perception of the child that dictates their model of the world. So by the time we have our earliest memory, let's say it's four, five, six years old, we've had years of conditioning that love is conditional. That if we behave a certain way, we get rewarded. And if we don't behave a certain way, we don't. Well, there's consequences. And while that may have a lot of you know, merit when it comes to guiding children away from danger or you know, giving them good habits, the imprint that it often leaves is that we now know love is conditional. And we spend the rest of our life projecting that out into our own relationships, including the one in the mirror. So given this, is there anything that parents should be doing differently? As I said, I don't have a solution for it, but if I was to you know, give my opinion, because I can't give advice either, I don't have kids. My kids have four legs, yeah, and uh, that's a, that's a, that's a different set of challenges to to raise than than the obviously the the, the two legged kind. <laughs> but if you take the canine model, uh, something I am familiar with, positive reinforcement rather than yeah negative reinforcement is a huge focus. Yeah, being able to instill self-belief, self-worth, and a positive self-image. In other words, self-esteem into a child, I think is the greatest gift you can give the child. Most people these days, especially coming out of you know what's happened the last few years, are fearful. They are, they're questioned, they are uncertain, and that translates into a lot of cascading effects throughout life. Now you walk into a, a job interview, and I've, I've employed you know, many hundreds of people in my career throughout my companies, and you know, a resume is one thing. Now that, that, that's price of admission to see if you qualified. But I want to know who you are. You know, your resume is your echo. I want to hear your voice. And if somebody comes in and I've got two people with the same resume, I'm looking for the one with the most certainty. Because that's you know, the, what I'm, you know, that, that's the characteristic one. Somebody who's not going to go to pieces when it gets wartime. It's in business, you know, you have calm seas, you have rough seas. And everyone can sail on a calm sea. But you wanna, you're want you looking for a sailor that can handle the storms. Now, that if there's pressure or deadlines or you know, uh, curveballs or what have you, who's going to step up to that? And if you've got low self-esteem, you're going to doubt, have questions, and, and essentially not be as reliable uh, to yourself, let alone the, the company or the people around you. So uh, when it comes to, to parenting, if you can... Uh, offer you know, over-reward good behaviors and 
Yeah. Educate people around the bad behaviors. It's funny, I was thinking, because I was, I, I landed from the airport this morning and we we're uh, getting off uh, the plane and there was a couple there with a, a small child. And in the period of two minutes it took us to walk off the plane, there must have been five or six different instances the parents said, no, don't do that. Ah, no, you can't do that. Uh, don't. And this child is growing up in a, in a model of the world where in, they're pushing against boundaries and it's almost withdrawing as a result because I don't want to trip a, uh, a tripwire I can't see. Again, there's no substitute for not putting in the, the proper guidance, but you don't want that to be the only uh, aspect. Mm. Mm. I remember when I was, I was in Japan one time and uh, I was giving a, a big seminar, about a thousand people were in Tokyo. And I was talking about uh, the power of being able to um, be the star of your own movie rather than an unpaid film extra in somebody else's. And a person raised his hand. He says, you know, I understand it intellectually, but it doesn't work for me. He said, 10 years ago, my you know, childhood sweetheart you know, climbed to the top of the school building and jumped off and killed herself in front of us. He says, and I've never been able to get over that. I can't get over that. Yeah, and I replay it and I have nightmares. And he says, what do you do about that? You get a thousand people in the room, look at you on stage and and, uh, and expect some sort of answer. But the for, for me, the the awareness was quite, quite obvious. Uh, the context was that she'd got a B instead of an A. And her parents had ridiculed her because she needed to be a straight A student in order in their model of the world to be good enough. Uh, and every kid wants to make their parents proud. Uh, we don't realize that you know, our parents are simply are still trying to make their parents proud and so on. Uh, they've got their own stuff to deal with. And I said, may I ask you a question? I said, yeah. do you at some point you know, would want to have a relationship? If, if you could get rid of this, you know, you know, the story and what, what happened, would you want to have a relationship at some point in your life? He said, well, yes, of course. I said, would you want to have children at some point? He says, absolutely. I said, what would happen if your child came home with a B instead of an A? How would you react? And says, oh my goodness, I, I would tell them how proud I am of them. I'd say, oh, well done. You know, you're on track. Yeah, let's, let's keep that momentum going. And I believe in you to be able to get the A next time. I said, yeah, absolutely. I said, the greatest gift that your former partner gave you as her dying gift was to give you a lesson to be able to carry forward for your own children. And right now you're burying that gift in a way that dishonors her memory. As as you staying stuck essentially takes away all of the benefit that she sacrificed herself to be able to give so that your children can be raised in a way that would never fall under that level of criticism or anxiety or depression. And he got it. He was in tears. He, he got it. He on. You know, uh, it was. It was a very cathartic moment. You know, in fact, there wasn't a dry eye in the house at that point. But, but he felt it. And if you are a parent, you know, I, I see so many well-intentioned. You know, we don't want to be jailers. We don't want to be you know, strict school teachers for our kids. We want them to grow up. No parent wakes up every morning and says, "I want to be a bad parent today. How can I screw up my kid's life?" That doesn't happen. But if we are constantly reinforcing the negative, not the positive, you're going to become that kind of person. 
we don't get to vote whether we're programmable or not. We only get to vote how we want to be programmed. And if you live in a house where, for example, the parents are chaotic and uh, unpredictable, you are likely going to become very organized. You have to to survive. And if you don't know if there's going to be milk in the fridge on Friday for your you know, breakfast cereal or not, you, you start growing up fast in terms of looking for order because chaos means yeah, yeah, death. If you grew up in a household where your parents are very disciplinarian, you know, your father would beat you with a belt or whatever it may be, or verbally abuse you or you know, throw pots and pans because they're dealing with their own stuff. You know, they're in their own drama. And you will most likely at that point adapt to being a peacekeeper because everywhere you turned when you were growing up was a, a landmine and you didn't know if you were going to tread on it or not. So now you just want to get along. Uh, you become conflict averse. You find it hard to draw boundaries and consequently attract people into a relationship that usually end up being more narcissistic uh, because no one's challenging them. Uh, if you grew up in a house that was very orderly, and everything had its place and everything was run like clockwork and you know, a bit like the sound of music with the, uh, was it the Von Trapp children? You know? <laughs> and you will probably retreat into your mind for imagination. You'd become super creative. You'd get lost in the arts, whether it's music or, or poetry or writing or, or games or fantasy or whatever it may be. So we carry with us a lot of the, um, uh, the patterns that we adapt to from our childhood. Uh, we call it a survival, survival archetype. Uh, if you grew up where there was a uh, several siblings and if you didn't get to the table first, you went hungry. You're likely got a very competitive streak. You probably eat fast too. Uh, and you've got no problem drawing boundaries. You've got no problem squaring up. You've got no problem saying no. And you get the people that are the peacekeepers. One of the biggest correlations of disease in cancer, new studies out, it's fascinating. People's inability to say no. In other words, they come from life as a perpetual caregiver, which like we said with perfectionism, perfectionism is great in your mind because you're striving for some ideal and that's good, right? No, you're relabeling scared of screwing upism right, to avoid the fear of failure and making it sound like you're altruistic. Um, so uh, if, if you can have a, an understanding that you know, uh, saying no to somebody, drawing a boundary is healthy. And if you don't know how to do that, you're going to attract a whole lot of people that will take advantage, even unwittingly. Uh, that can be a, a huge you know, detriment to a lot of people. So you know, it, th there's many factors you know, when we're, we're growing up that can influence who we are right now. But coming back to, again, the, uh, the, the child, so I say, if you can give your child self-esteem, you're, you're just preparing them for adulthood. And you don't get to tell them what career. Uh, you don't get to tell them, you know, and if, if you try to, they'll probably specialize in the opposite. And you don't get to do anything. You can do your best as a parent, but if you're trying to validate yourself as a parent by what your kid chooses to do with their movie, you're always going to be in fear. You're always going to try to control, and it'll most likely drive a wedge between you rather than understand. And we've seen this very recently with you know different sexuality we've got old school parents that are somewhat homophobic and you know their child you know comes out as being gay and then you know one of the parents dismisses the child and, and cast them out 
you know, from a, a cultural paradigm that's archaic, but what do you think that's doing to the kid? And so knowing that no matter what your child does or doesn't do, they're still worthy of love. Oh, how does that translate? Look in the mirror. No matter what you've done or not done, you're worthy of love. If this podcast is good or not good, you're worthy of love. I I can only imagine what people are thinking because as you're describing this, just so many things of my childhood and the way I am just kind of makes sense. Like, I don't know. I don't, yeah. <laughs> I wish this weren't being broadcast to millions of people because it's, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And they want to see the side. They, they want to see the, the vulnerability. They, they want to see the introspection. Yeah. It's always, I feel like, well, I, I guess I can be real. I feel like I'm always, I don't want to say anything that will hurt my parents' feelings, but I, just an example, and let's just hope that my mom doesn't hear this. I remember when I was 17, I was gaining weight and she, she like bought me Slim Fast and all I could have for dinner was Slim Fast. See, I shouldn't do this. It's <laughs> okay. But social just, expectations. Yeah. And again, you know, the one of the deepest wounds we have is is our parents. You know, all we wanted was love and approval. And a lot of people go to their grave still trying to get that decades after their parents have passed. Understanding that, you know, we're the same. You know, our parents were just us a few years older. Kids don't come with an owner's manual. And any parents out there right now will know the anxiety that came with finding out the first time they were pregnant. What does that mean? Am I going to be good enough? Oh my goodness, this is new territory. And, you know, it's when we are kids and we look up, I, mean, I wanted to make my parents, I never knew my dad was proud of me until after he died. You know, because, you know, my, my stepmom say, he used to talk about you all the time and everything else. And I was still trying hard in my 20s to prove to the entire world I was good enough. Hopefully so my parents would notice. And my mom was different. My, my mom was a, a love bug. She was, you know, she, she'd be proud of me if, you know, I was, you know, just, <laughs> you know, sitting around as a bum. But uh, my dad was a different matter. I think, you know, fathers as a, as a patriarchal figure, certainly for boys, have a, a, a very strong level of requirement or innate need to want to prove you know, that you're, you're good enough you know, to, to your dad. But, you know, having your mom looking at what your mom was doing you interpret that as, oh my God, I'm not good enough. I don't fit her picture. She's now telling me that I've got to get slim. All right, I'm a failure. I'm on all of the self-talk that goes with that. Instead of potentially looking as what was going on, which is, wow, I really care for my daughter. I want her to be you know, uh, healthy and vibrant. And we've got choices now I probably never had when I was a kid. Let me help her yeah. there because that would make me a good enough mom. So it wasn't about you being a worse daughter. It was about her trying to be a good enough mom. But we're all focused as being the star of our own movie and look at it through that lens. And we never realized that you know, the, the original impetus for so many actions, even if they come across as judgmental at the time, are a cover-up for a lot of the patterns of limitation people are running. Well, and I think that's why I have such a hard time saying it because when I say it, I realize like objectively people are going to be like, oh, what a horrible mother Erica has. But I, I love her. She loves me. Like I know it came from a place of not wanting me to get made fun of at school or not wanting people to comment on me. And so it's hard because I know 
looking back that it, of course it must have hurt me, but it comes from a place of love. So how do you deal with that conflict where someone is doing something out of love, but it actually damages the other person? Well, I'd be mindful of the language as well. All right. It's, I wouldn't use the word damage. The, you know, if, if you start to appreciate the context, mm-hmm. see context is definitive. If you take a, uh, a parent and you look over, you're a parent and you look over at a parent, you know, walking their three-year-old uh, across the road in town and, and this parent just yanks violently on the arm of the three-year-old, uh, most people have judgment of that. That's, that's not how you treat a three-year-old. And then you do a double take and realize the parent just moved the kid out of the way of a moving bus and risked their own life to do it. Same action, same amount of strength on the arm, same violent pull, completely different context. So you can't change content, certainly if it's already happened, but context is definitive. And so if you look at your mom, ask yourself a question. What else do you think your mom could have done in order to help her daughter? I don't know, maybe gone to the gym with me? Yeah, and this is my point. A, you've never asked the question because it took you a long time to think of the answer. But B, more importantly, she probably did what she thought was the only best thing, the easiest thing for you. She may have had her own insecurities about going to the gym. What have you? you, know, she, you know, mothers love to prepare meals. This this one was just a shake. So you're <laughs> saying that every situation you're supposed to look back at it and change the context to understand the other person's perspective? Until you do, in all fairness, I believe you have no right to judge. Because the reality, Erica, is that if you were your mum at that point, and you did have your mom's belief system, thoughts, model of the world, experiences, upbringing, psychology, you would have done the exact same thing. And when we appreciate that, we may not agree with it. In hindsight, we can all come up with better ideas. And if she thought for one second that was going to instill a unhealthy sense of self-image or resentment or guilt or turn you anorexic or whatever the potential consequences could have been out of that, she wouldn't have done that in a heartbeat. This is so interesting. Like, I feel like it's taken it to a completely different level where at the beginning we were talking theoretically about how you can change the context of the situation to get yourself out of the victim mentality. And now I'm thinking, wow, when I told you that story, I was really feeling like a victim. And I've I've never told that story to anyone. I've never, never told my mom this. Hmm. I don't even think she probably remembers it, but I've always probably thought not. of it. Like all of my body image issues, like the eating disorder that I did have in college, like I always traced it back to that. And I was thinking like, my mom did that. But no, I I think you're right that maybe, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this. I certainly don't want to come off as, oh, I'm playing victim. But I don't know if taking situations and saying, oh, the other person did it out of love is also necessarily the right solution. It may not uh, be the the, the example. And the most important part right now is how you deal with it right now. What context can you create that empowers you rather than disempowers you? That's, that's mm. the whole aspect. And without getting into the realms of fantasy, because again, the heart and mind need to be aligned in a level of believability to at least give it credence. Reality is your mom, as you say, probably doesn't even remember. Right? It wasn't a big deal for her, but I can promise you she was doing it to help. Yeah. She wasn't doing it out of spite. She wasn't doing it to try and set up a lifelong body image or eating disorder issue. Uh, she would have re- been repulsed at that idea. But if we carry that forward, we're giving that energy. And whatever you bring energy to, you energize. Whatever you bring neutrality to, you neutralize. 
And the fastest way to neutralize something is to see it for context. I'll give another example. So I had a former business partner of mine, beautiful soul, his name was Ramesh. And he told me the story one time about, he was a bit of a bad boy in his you know, sort of teens and, and early 20s. And part of that rebellion came from being very frustrated with his father. He never had a great relationship with his father. And one of the main roots of that was because his father would never come to the school on the parent nights or the parent teachers association, everything else. And Ramesh, as a boy, wanted his dad to be proud. He would work so hard on projects. Uh, to uh, and he would hope his dad would come this time and the teacher would say something nice and he would finally feel that sense of self-esteem or you know, uh, internal pride about you know having done something so he could impress or you know, his dad get approval uh, external validation but it never happened and it caused a big problem because Ramesh now had evidence his father didn't care and trying to reconcile that was a struggle and ended up taking him down a path that you know, he later corrected but at the time was, you would call disruptive. And then Ramesh got into personal growth. And he knew he had some stuff to clean up. And he went to his dad to have the conversation. This is now in his, you know, 30 odd years old. He's like, dad, we need to clear something up. They, they'd not really spoke. You know, they, they didn't have a, a close relationship by any means. Because the dad's now judging Ramesh for the behaviors that he's doing and probably beating himself up and all that kind of stuff. And he said, I'm still carrying the issue as to why you never cared about me at school. I worked my ass off. I tried so hard. I wanted, I wanted every time there was a, a teacher's night or a parent teacher's night, I wanted you to come and, and, and see what I was doing. But you never did. And his father started to break down and cry. He says, oh, son. He says, the reason I never came I so wanted to be there. I so wanted to be able to support you. But you know I can't read or write very well. And I didn't want the teacher showing me something and me embarrassing you in front of them. And so it was one of the hardest things I did, but I stayed away. Because I didn't want to let you down. Mm. Boom. One shift in contextual understanding invalidates a decade of running a pattern of limitation. We're so quick to judge from our own movies. We very rarely forget what's going on in somebody else's. Then I'm sure like everyone listening has something that they're holding on to. Is the real technique here to think of it in a different situation, think of the different context, and then move on from it? Again, it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all. But there are many aspects to processing negative past significant emotional events. And one of the first things to look at is, what is the secondary gain that I'm getting from this? There are a lot of people that actually hold on to their victim stories, even if it's unconsciously, as a trophy. In other words, you know, they're very happy being unhappy. A, they've either conditioned or got themselves so used to it, and they don't, they, they class it as normal. You know, if you get stressed, you're cortisol baseline will increase. And at some point you realize it's normal and you forget what it's actually like until you're lying on a beach on your two week vacation and finally drop into you know, who you are. If you're looking at secondary gain, you know, let's take drug addicts as an example. You know, I've worked a lot with addictions and, and uh, first question I ask a drug addict is who are you without your problem? What do you mean? Well, there's only so many needs. And we're not talking Maslow, we're talking about like psychological needs. You have the need for certainty, need for for significance, need for variety, 
need for love and connection. You know, most people want love, but they settle for connection. And those four needs are really driving the personality. Then you have growth and contribution, which are more the spiritual needs of you know, in alignment with how the river of life is flowing. So if you look at a drug addict, you know, they will likely not have anything significant. And I'm talking typical street kind of level. Yeah, they don't have a significant education. They don't drive a significant car. They don't have any significant money in the bank. But they have a significant problem. And as a result of that significant problem, they get a lot of attention. A lot of people running around. Yeah, a lot of people taking care of them. A lot of people that uh, they rely on. And so without the drug problem now, who are they? Just a normal member of society? Well, I've got no significance to fall back on as a psychological need. How do I, you know, how do I cope? So there's a need structure. And the first question you ask is, who are you without your problem? Are you willing to let go of that problem or are you identified as that problem? For example, I am a drug addict means you've got nowhere to go. Because it's who you are. It's part of your identity. Yeah? I am currently suffering from an addiction to I said, you know, it's not me. I'm, I'm suffering from an addiction. My body is addicted to, it's not who I am. Same with diabetics. Someone says, I'm a diabetic. Well, then there's nowhere to go. Follow the standard medical protocol and good luck, which, you know, usually doesn't do anything for them. But if you say, you know, I'm not a diabetic, and I'm an incredible, beautiful human being who currently has a body that's suffering from a condition called diabetes. That separation from who you are and what you have creates a gap that allows you to look in a way of possibility to treat. Mm. I know a lot of people that have uh, been diagnosed with certain um, disorders or let's just say um, whether it's physical or, or mental and they don't want to give them up because there's too much secondary gain. Now that could be a government you know, medical check. It could be a special parking badge. It could be whatever it is. But the secondary gain that comes with it often prevents people. You know, we see this with welfare and work you know, as a trap. You know, for a lot of people, they make more on welfare than they would on a minimum wage. So what's the point? Shifting your relationship to it uh, is important. But look at what is the secondary gain. Otherwise, you're going to fall straight back into the pattern. If I give up, finally get off drugs and go into rehab and I come out clean, but... All of my friends are using, and now I'm getting insignificance by not using. I'm going to be back on drugs because I need that level of significance. If you're suffering from levels of, uh, I want to say anxiety, anxiety is the emotion of growth if it's unresisted. You'll have to explain that to me. Yeah. <laughs> the emotion of growth if it's yeah. unresisted. Yeah, if you resist anxiety, if you're fighting it, if you think it's bad, it's going to limit you. Remember what we said earlier about the mammals? Anxiety is you know, is good. Fear plays a very useful role in evolution, but it only plays one role. Fear's job is to be a warning light on the dashboard to get your attention to something that's dangerous. If there's a snake or a large drop off a cliff, fear plays a useful role to get your attention and mobilize your body to take action to move away from the danger. At that point, it has served its purpose. Uh, fear plays no other useful role in our entire lives other than getting our attention to a flashing light on the dashboard. You know, is it a low tire pressure? Uh, is it you know, low fuel? Is it you know, engine temperature? Whatever it is, fear is there to get our attention to something uh, as a physical response. That's how the amygdala develops in our brain. Uh, if we are uh, resisting what it is, we focus on it, then we get anxious. And we project into that scenario. 
So if you see something that's like the first time you did a podcast, there was anxiety, but it wasn't resisted and you grew, right? Whereas if you're now facing something, so I I don't want to face that. I don't want to face, you know, whatever crap the mainstream media is trying to force down your throat these days. Uh, I don't watch the news for the last 20 years, but there's a lot of people that do and they're scared and it's psychological fear, right? There's very little inherent physical danger. But if you are getting anxious, you first thing you want to do is wake up because most people are sleeping awake when it comes to that. They're, they're running off a pattern. Oh, somebody says this, or I see this on TV, or you know, somebody mentioned this on social, you know, or anti-social media is mostly this for most people. Then you run off a pattern, anxious, anxiety, anger, whatever that may be. And so when you are able to catch yourself and wake up, you can ask better questions, as we said, and then look back, okay, what, what can I learn from this? What is, what's about this that uh, is the gift I haven't seen yet? Change your focus. Or if it's a significant past emotional event, one of the exercises I do with my students is the first thing is I tell it in as little words as possible what actually happened. Because what you'll do is if you ask somebody about their story, about why they're a victim, that's exactly what you will hear, the story. Again, there's the there's the flat tire on the freeway and there's the story about the flat tire on the freeway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but what actually happened? I had a flat tire. I'm like, oh, you're not gonna believe this. I was driving down in the middle lane, all of a sudden the car started wobbling and you know, I, I nearly missed this truck and I managed to safely get over to the hard shoulder and, and then I couldn't find the jack and then my phone battery's low and I, I was trying to ring for... The drama comes from the story. What actually happened? You had a flat tire. What actually happened? My parent died. What actually happened? I lost my job. What actually happened? My partner left me. Okay, let's don't embellish any more than that. Mm. I'm not negating it. I'm saying, don't, you know, don't tell it worse than it is. Next question, which means what? Well, my parent died. It means that now, in my case, I'm an orphan. It means that, yeah, I'm not going to see my mother anymore. Okay. What can I learn from this? I can learn that, yeah, life is precious and short. I can learn that, you know, I, you know, Everything in the physical is one day going to be non-physical. Yeah, I can learn that, yeah, I can't control the outcome for other people's movies. But whatever it may be, write out, what, what can I learn from that? Shifting your focus, not what can I be sad about? You can write pages on there all day long. That's mm-hmm. not the game. And then start writing, why can I be grateful for this? Well, I can be grateful because she's no longer in pain. I can be grateful because it's every parent's wish that their children outlived them and I'm so happy to be able to give her that wish. Yeah, and you can go on. You you can make that list. I've had students that have written 77 grad things why they're grateful that their sibling died, for example, something they've been carrying for, for, for years. And it shifts the game. Not going to bring them back. It's not designed to. Nothing's going to do that. And if you're staring at a situation that you can't change, but you want a different outcome to have happened, you're going to be stuck for a long time. That's where most people are in that cul-de-sac. So you can't change what happened, but you do change the context. And there's not a scenario that you could offer me that I haven't worked through at some point with a student to get them to a point where they, the, the, the test is, can they actually answer the last question, which is, if I were to go back and change this, would I? And when the answer is no, you've written enough reasons to be grateful. What if the answer is yes? Then keep finding more reasons to be grateful. Keep finding more lessons to learn. Keep stripping out the story and the drama of it. I know while you were in prison, you wrote 
I think, 11 letters to your students from inside the prison. What were they about? What were you talking about? Wow, yes, that's uh, that's had qu- quite a, a legacy impact. Uh, and originally, again, coming from the mindset of how do I add value? I knew I was there to make a difference to the prisoners. And long story short, I ended up getting a lot of the prisoners off drugs. Uh, I was stopping suicides. I redesigned the intake system to reduce violence between the wings. It's now being used in prisons all over the world. I even won a national award for what I did in there for the impact it created. I was, I was, I was very proud of it, very, very humbling. But every two weeks, I wrote to my senior students. Uh, I was mid-coaching program, if you like, when I went away. And half the students ran for the hills and half says, well, hang on a minute, this, this doesn't seem right. We're going to stick around and see what happens. And so every two weeks I would write almost like part diary, part mm-hmm. journal, uh, but mostly tradecraft. Things I'd spent 25 years learning that I was showing that I was using on myself and on the people in the prison and the impact and the difference it was making. And I would write a letter every two weeks. And when I came out at the end of six months, they turned around to me and said they'd learned more from those 11 letters that I'd written than following me around the world for two years on stage. And I had to publish. And I said, well, you know, these are private letters. This was never written as a book. And, and most books about things like that are written as a memoir after the fact. This is unfolding day by day in real time. You never know what's going to happen on the next page. I don't know what's going to happen on the next page as I'm writing it. Yeah, And I was very detailed about some of the interventions. Now, you've got five minutes to stop somebody committing suicide permanently. Not just in the moment. You can change anybody's state in the moment by changing their focus. But what happens when they go back to their cell and they think the same thoughts in the outside world still hasn't changed about the things they were depressed about? How do you, how do you stop suicide at that level uh, permanently? That's a different skill set. That's a different technique. And I break all of that down on, you know, in the book on chapter seven when I, I had to do that with somebody. How do you take uh, a scene that was about to erupt into, into violence? You've got three guys on the wing arguing over religion. You can already see two hands in the pockets that you know are on shanks uh, and things are about to kick off. How do you get yourself invited into that conversation neutrally, maintain the illusion of significance for the people that feel that they're they're in charge, and recontextualize the argument in a way where they all become friends and you walk off as if nothing's happened? It's a pretty strong skill set, and I owe 25 years in personal growth and psychotherapeutic intervention to be able to do that. But I also break down the organizing principles. So that it, you know, not that God forbid you'd ever find yourself in prison, but you'd be able to do it if, if your daughter comes home from school having a bad day or you get downsized at work. Now, you've now got a whole set of tools, practical tools to be able to use that will go and you know, change your life for the better. And I'm, I'm very blessed. I had no idea the impact these letters would have. Uh, and we published it uh, a year after I came out. And you know, I look back on it as probably the most exciting adventure I ever had the privilege of living. What's the story that people come to you and say that is the one that impacted me the most from the book? Oh, that there's been many and it's, it's situational dependent. So for example, the, the suicide story and how I stopped the guy committing suicide, I had a lot of people write in saying it finally allowed them to come to terms with understanding their father's suicide, for example, or their friend's suicide. Uh, and they could see it way much more behind the, the layers of the onion. Uh, we had a lot of people that... Uh, in the very first chapter where I talk about how to dissolve negative emotions, uh, either temporarily or permanently, and using that in everyday lives, especially when there's been a breakup in a relationship, which is where a lot of people feel it. You you get fired, you know, you have uncertainty about money or whatever, you're trying to get another job. But affairs of the heart are affairs of the heart. And if somebody is 
in a relationship, and especially if it comes as a, a surprise, and all of a sudden they're now single for whatever reason, that can throw people off the horse at, you know, on, and hit the ground hard. Uh, so there's almost, I don't think there's many scenarios I've not heard uh, over the last um, yeah, little while since the book's been out. In my image of prison, though, I always felt like you're supposed to keep your head down and mind your own business and not talk to people. So how did you even broach those situations where you were able to talk to people? I mean, are you, what are you saying as your intro? Like, hello, I, I've been helping, <laughs> I've been coaching <laughs> psychology mindset for the last no. 25 years. Uh, it's uh, no, uh, not at all. Uh, and nobody cares about you or your story uh, in there. Uh, and it is law of the jungle. Yeah, you know, there, there were some pretty hairy moments, but I, I'll be honest, I never once felt in danger. Not because I'm tough. You know, I, I can talk a lot faster than most people hit, right? But more because I knew I was there to serve. My intention was to add value. My intention was to, how can I bring a, a light into a dark place and hopefully make a difference? I didn't know if I could. I didn't know if I could. I didn't know if I could be able to make a difference to myself. But I, I went in there. It was, it was what I call a graduation event. Now, when you're in earth school, you're going to get tested. And this was definitely a test. And so the people that are struggling are easy to spot. You've got people that are walking around with a lot of bravado. But the people that are, are struggling, you walk up uh, and you just strike a conversation. Hey, buddy, what's up? And most people say, what are you in for? And when I said contempt of court, everyone looked at me blank. Like, what are you doing here? How long did you get? So I'm, I'm in for six months. They're like, what? I, I know, it was, it was unprecedented. But you, know, you, you learn a lot about how the court system works. So uh, I was never a threat. You know, and there's always a bigger fish. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of big fish in there. Uh, I was never a threat to anyone else's significance or pride. And I was always looking to help. In fact, after a, a few weeks, I was writing letters for prisoners that were struggling or dyslexic to their families. Yeah, I was even helping one guy put a letter of apology together to the family he robbed, for example, because he felt remorse after going through some of the, of the stuff. Uh, and so, yeah, it was, it was a very um, interesting environment. Uh, but I never felt in danger. I kind of picked up on this when you were talking about how you weren't allowed to wake up till 7 a.m. So even if you woke up at 5 a.m., like you couldn't disturb your cellmate. Were you ever able to get close with your cellmate or no? Uh, I had several. Uh, in fact, uh, it was funny. One of, one of my students wrote in and says, as soon as the guards find out you know, how good you are with people, you expect uh, all of the worst cellmates there to be thrown in with you one after the other. And, uh, and it's funny because I did take it on as a challenge. My third cellmate was a guy called Mark. And uh, he, was, he was the one that threatened the most violence with me. Uh, he threatened to smash the TV in my face you know, uh, at one point. Uh, big guy as well, much bigger than me, you know, 6'4", six, 6'5", six, and probably about 220 pounds. Uh, not 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 muscle, yeah, more like yeah, uh, beer and pies, but yeah, very negative and very depressed when I got there. And I uh, yeah, I, I worked a fair bit with my I mean, we're twenty three hours a day together, right? And within a week, we've got an exercise routine in the cell. He's doing press ups. He was upset because his wife wouldn't come to visit him because she blamed him for uh, you know whatever stupid thing he did and why he ended up in there. So she hadn't been to visit. I ended up helping him write a letter to her and she came visited him a, a week later. Um, we had a, a strict no TV as in no news policy uh, in, in the cell. I mean, you're in a negative place. Why keep programming yourself with negativity? Uh, and Mark made some, some really good progress. But, uh, but it's, at one point, uh, they moved me out of the cell. And a few days later, he had a psychotic episode. Uh, and I saw six, you know, I'm looking through my little window in my, my cell door. I saw six officers in riot gear have to go in to, to drag him out. 
And he was given psychiatric care at that point. But one of the officers came to see me afterwards because I'd just spent two and a half, three weeks with the guy. And they said, you know, they wanted my, my assessment. You know, why, why is he flipped? And I was explaining my, my, my thoughts. He's very much like a pressure cooker. Now, luckily, I knew how to release the valve uh, without it becoming violent. But without that, and his next cellmate, unfortunately, clearly didn't, uh, it, you know, it, it got to a point where it blew. So, you know, there, there was, a, there was a, a lot of different things happening, but, you know, I, I was there to try to help. I, I really was. In fact, I kept a magic moments list. I was in that 200 magic moments by the time I came out. And my first um, magic moment was actually the, uh, the doctor, the prison doctor that I saw on the first night in the holding cell. And the doctor, I go in for the medical and, and what have you, and he says, um, can I ask you a question? I says, sure. He says, are you undercover? <laughs> and, and like, I started laughing. I'm like, what, what, what makes you say that? It was actually the second person, the person that gave me my clothes, the prison officer asked me if I was a police officer when I went. I'm like, no, and please don't give me that label. <laughs> and uh, I said, oh, and I'm curious, what makes you ask? He says, in 20 plus years of being a prison doctor, he's never seen anybody so happy on their first ever day in prison. And I told him, I says, well, actually, I think I'm here for a reason. I think I'm here to help people. I think I'm here as a secret agent of change. At which point he was probably going to prescribe some antipsychotic yeah, kind of medication, but, uh, <laughs> which he didn't. Uh, but, the, but I remember uh, on the first weekend, you know, I, was, I was sent down on a Friday. And the first weekend, I was in the cell where, with uh, another guy from Bangladesh who was massively depressed. He'd gone into court on the Friday to get a date for a, a hearing. And the judge had kept him in on remand, wasn't expecting it, but he was getting married on the Saturday the next day. And his life savings had gone into it and his family were flying over from Bangladesh and didn't see it coming. So he was like, his world had fallen apart. And I spent the weekend with him as my first weekend in there. And, and at the end, I was transferred to a non-smoking wing. He was a smoker. And as I left the cell, his parting comment was, it was beautiful, it made my magic moments list. He said, I came into prison on Friday thinking my entire world had fallen apart. He says, now I know I came to prison to meet you. Wow. And uh, many things like that. Oh, it was, it was, it was, it was touching. Several times I cried. Sometimes I cried because I was upset, scared, and lonely. Uh, I document that in the letters too. And uh, sometimes I cried just out of joy and, and appreciation for for where I was at. Do you stay in touch with anyone from the prison? Yes, I had a call last week from one of my other cellmates that I, I write about in chapter nine. That's that's a that's a fascinating story. But I'll, I'll, I know we're running on time here, so I'll probably let you uh, let you read that in the book. Amazing. This has been incredible. Thank you so much. We have a little closing tradition. So the podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Peter Taught Me. So what do you want people to walk away being able to say, Peter taught me this? Peter taught me that no matter what anybody else says, no matter what I grew up thinking or believing, that I have nothing to prove, nothing to defend, and nothing to conquer in order to know I'm the star of my own movie. Beautiful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. If you've enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support what we're doing. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.